Well, <clears throat> over 200, maybe 300 years ago, in Appalachia, on the Kentucky-West Virginia border, separated by the Tug Fork River, there were two neighbors. The Hatfields settled on the West Virginia side, and the McCoys settled on the Kentucky side. They did not get along. In 1875, Harmon McCoy, who had been discharged from the Union Army because of a broken leg, he was killed. No suspects were found. A few years later, in 1878, in the midst of competition for timber, the McCoys claimed that the Hatfields stole a hog, and so they took them to court. Of course, in court, the Hatfields won. Now, a few years after that, 1882, three of Randall McCoy's sons shot and stabbed Ellison Hatfield after he insulted one of them. To avenge Ellison's murder, a Hatfield posse rounded up the three McCoys and shot them 50 times. In 1887, a McCoy lawyer tried to get the Hatfields extradited to Kentucky to stand trial for the murder of Randolph McCoy's three sons. The McCoys kidnapped a few Hatfields and brought them back to Kentucky. The outraged Hatfields burned down Randolph McCoy's house, killing two more of his children. A daughter was shot in the stomach as she tried to douse the flames. Her mother tried to run to her dying daughter, but was knocked unconscious by a Hatfield being pistol-whipped. In 1889, the Supreme Court ordered the Hatfields to stand trial in Kentucky, and all eight were found guilty of murder. One was publicly hanged for the murder of McCoy's daughter. The other seven spent life in prison. In 1891, the feud was ended. In 1976, the two families shook hands, which was noteworthy in the news. But in the year 2000, the two families again began a three-year court battle over possession of a cemetery. In 2003, the families officially signed a truce stating they do hereby and formally declare an official end to all hostilities implied, inferred, and real between the families now and forevermore. In the end, at least 12 people lost their lives in this family conflict. When we take vengeance into our own hands, we're playing with fire. There's this common idea that when push comes to shove, inherently, we know what's best. We know what's right and wrong. And so frankly, because often the system fails us, because some wrongs go unrecognized and unpunished, we take matters into our own hands. Now, I don't think we necessarily all put on capes and dress up like bats and go around like Batman imposing justice on the streets. If you do, please see me after church. I'd love to talk to you about that. <laughs> but we do struggle with taking vengeance into our own hands, don't we? I mean, think about it. A coworker or a fellow student or even a sibling does you wrong and you think, okay, I owe them one, right? I'm going to render justice for that. Maybe your neighbor blew leaves on your lawn. Oh, fall's coming. Just wait. Just wait. And heaven forbid someone cut you off on 287. And that's it. We are going to shift into overdrive and get, get some revenge right there on the freeway. Now, we can chuckle a little bit at these struggles, 
but they reveal a deeper problem in us. A, A problem which Jesus addresses with striking clarity and frankly, a shocking, shockingly different attitude than what we're used to in Matthew chapter 5. He addresses the topic of vengeance, and he does so because it had gotten out of hand. And that's not a problem unique to the first century situation in Israel. It's a problem in our lives today. And so as we read Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42, we have to just confess that there are some times when we want to, or maybe we have, taken justice into our own hands. We've harbored that attitude that we really do know what's ultimately right and wrong and how someone should be punished. And frankly, maybe we've taken the responsibility on ourselves to do the punishing. So with that in mind, we need to hear a very un-American way of thinking in Matthew chapter 5. Watch verse 38 as we're in this string of, of examples that Jesus gives where he articulates and clarifies the heart of the Old Testament law. The law is fulfilled in Christ, And as he has fulfilled the law, he just calls his followers to live a different life, a different kind of living that's, rather than being focused on this kind of ticky-tack law-keeping, it's actually focused on putting God first. And so we come to another example from the law here in verse 38. Jesus says in verse 38, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, just in quoting that little portion of Scripture, Jesus is quoting either Exodus 21, verse 24, possibly Leviticus 24, verse 20, or Deuteronomy 19, 21. That principle is repeated three times in the Old Testament law. It's not unique to the Old Testament. And that law, an eye for an eye and a, and a tooth for a tooth, that law is a law of uh, appropriate retribution or proportionate retribution. It's a law to prevent uh, courts and societies from over-punishing for a crime, or actually, in the Deuteronomy example, under-punishing for a a crime. So there's a a temptation in a broken world because of sin, where maybe uh, the judge over a particular case happens to live in your neighborhood, and you're the one that was wronged. The judge might feel a sense of loyalty to you and may uh, over-compensate for that in in rendering a harsh uh, punishment for the crime. Or maybe you're the one that's actually guilty, and the judge lives in your neighborhood. And so the judge says, you know what, I know you were guilty for that, but I'm just going to give you a little lesser of a sentence. So the law is there to protect, in a formal judicial context, it's to protect this idea that the punishment should fit the crime. Now, Jesus has no problem with that. The problem that was happening then, and still happens today, is that this principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, or the punishment should fit the crime— That principle had been taken and was being applied not in a judicial legal context, but in a personal context. So someone wrongs you, you have the right to wrong them in proportion. That's the way the thinking works. And there's a thick line of division between a formal legal situation and a personal vendetta or, or actually seeking personal vengeance. And so people had taken the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, uh, you know, motto, and they had like tattooed it on their arms. And that was like how they functioned all the time. And so you cross me at work, eye for an eye, watch your back, I'm coming for you. You blow leaves on my lawn, watch out, I'm coming for you, right? You cut me off on the road, I'm going to speed up and do the same to you because an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, it's biblical after all, right? And of course, this law has been abused in personal use, this principle from God's word. Jesus addresses here the misapplication of God's word in this way. 
But when we think about that idea, that, that applying it in our own lives, having that eye for an eye, I always get to, to render the, the punishment for the crime in my own life, we realize that it's actually fundamentally self-centered. And that self-centered worldview runs contrary to the kingdom principles that Jesus calls us to. Specifically, the kingdom principles of humility and selflessness. Jesus here confronts the me first way of thinking, right? Me first. Look out for number one. And when we live this way, when we live in that me first way, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? We render justice. When we live this way, we overestimate our capacity to render true justice because we underestimate how much sin has messed us up. We overestimate our ability to actually render true justice. And again, apologies to Batman, right? Because we underestimate how much sin taints our ability to see what is truly just. Because sin has, has tainted our hearts, we don't always see everything clearly. In fact, we often or maybe always don't see everything clearly. And we cannot ultimately render true justice. Again, thinking about it from the perspective of personal ethics, we're just way too confident in ourselves. Way too confident in ourselves. We think, I'll show them, or they deserve what they're about to get. How jersey is that, by the way, right? Like, they deserve it. They, they've earned it, right? Street justice is what we need around here. I wonder if we ask the Hatfields and McCoys what they would say about that where street justice leads you. Now, that's an extreme example to be sure, but it just brings home the point that when we live in that me-first mindset, eye-for-an-eye, self-centered mindset, right, taking vengeance, right, that's mine, vengeance is mine, so I will render justice, I will dish out punishment. When we live that way, we enter into and exacerbate a cycle of conflict and violence that's only going to end in a bad place. And sadly, many of us could testify. We could say, I actually could tell you how my selfishness contributed to a conflict rather than leading to its solution, where I was selfish and it caused more problems rather than bringing peace. Again, the idea was, okay, you know what? Punishment has to fit the crime. So if you wrong me, I can wrong you back. And Jesus, people were, were believing that personally and acting that way in their lives. And so Jesus says, oh, no, no, we've got a totally different and radically different way of living in my kingdom. Watch verse 39. Just the first part here of verse 39. And again, it starts with a contrast with every one of these examples. Jesus says, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. Now that's all I want right here, right out of verse 39 for the moment. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. This is shocking. Because what Jesus says here is wickedness does not validate selfishness. Wickedness does not validate or justify selfishness. So, okay, we might be able to warrant uh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I may not know exactly what's going on in the whole situation, so maybe I shouldn't be the one rendering punishment. Okay, fine, Jesus, I'll give you that one. But here, Jesus says, actually, even if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that the person who had wronged you had done so with wicked intent and had done so as a function of sin and evil in their hearts. Even if you knew for absolute sure that that person had wronged you because of that, Jesus says, don't resist them. Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't put yourself first. 
Don't take vengeance right, into your own hands. Don't, don't take the responsibility for, for adjudicating the right verdict and, and rendering that punishment into your own hands. Jesus says, even, even if you know they're evil, don't do it. This is absolutely shocking to me. Because, again, we live in a, in a culture where, especially if we feel like we know for sure someone has wronged us out of malice or wickedness, then we really kind of release the hounds, and it justifies a, a response in kind. But Jesus says, that's not how we operate in my kingdom. Wickedness does not validate or justify selfishness. It's a plausible argument, but Jesus says, don't buy it. That's not what I have called you to. Now, here's the problem, right? It's, it's not that hard to, to get, walk down this road. Someone has wronged you. Let's say it's clearly wicked. It's clearly evil. It's clearly sinful, right? And you're thinking, wait a minute. If I give up my right to resist them, if I give up my right to kind of take matters into my own hands, then where will justice come from? Who's going to watch my back? Because we live in the real world. Are you, is Jesus saying that we should just all be Christian doormats for people in our culture to just run over us? And it's so interesting, isn't it? Because we find the answer to that objection tucked away in the Old Testament law. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, the Lord says, Vengeance and retribution belong to me. And in case we're not up on our Deuteronomy, the Apostle Paul quotes Deuteronomy 32 in Romans 12, 19. The author of Hebrews quotes Deuteronomy 32 in Hebrews 10, verse 30. Where will justice come from? Justice will come from the only place it can come from, the throne of God. You see, that's, the, that's what transforms our thinking here about this issue. Jesus says, don't resist the, the wicked, evil person. Okay, when they're trying to take advantage of you, don't don't take vengeance in your own hands. We'll talk about how that what that looks like specifically in a minute. But we just want to grab this principle here that it doesn't mean we're giving up on justice, giving up on vengeance, giving giving up the right to vengeance doesn't mean we give up on justice. It means we look to the place where justice can only come from. And of course, all we have to do to see what this looks like is to keep reading in Matthew. Because what happens when Jesus is attacked maliciously, wickedly, false charges, lying testimony, right? Trumped up, uh, you know, a trumped up kangaroo court. When Jesus is insulted, when Jesus is attacked, well, Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2 verse 23, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus didn't insult when he was insulted. He didn't strike back when he was struck. He didn't wound back when he was wounded. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. This is why this is such a central component of, of living as a follower of Jesus. It's because this is exactly the heart of the gospel itself. Think about it this way. If wickedness does not justify selfishness, if that wasn't true, if wickedness did justify selfishness, then what hope would we have? Because in Romans 5, the Apostle Paul tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If wickedness 
justified selfishness, Jesus could have said no. They're not worthy to be rescued. No, they're not worthy to be redeemed. Look at their motives. Look at, their, look at their, what they were doing, why they said that. Look at how they behave at, at school, at work, with their families. Look at how petty they are. No, I won't redeem them. They're not worthy. But brothers and sisters, isn't it so beautiful that we can say with full knowledge of our sinfulness, with full knowledge of our wickedness, Jesus endured insult. He took the wounds. He took the lashes. And he was crucified to rescue us. Jesus surrenders his right to vengeance, which actually he has the right to it, doesn't he? And yet he surrenders that right. And he died so that we could be rescued and forgiven. Therein lies the gospel. And, and if you're, you're new here and you're visiting, let me just encourage you that if you haven't become a follower of Jesus, this is why you should. Because Jesus, knowing every fault and failure in your heart, while you were still a sinner, he died out of love for you. And by faith in his death and resurrection, you can be forgiven right now and rescued. But you're called to a new life, a life of discipleship, a life of being a follower of Jesus. The, the main idea here is pretty clear. Kingdom citizens <clears throat> say no to self-centeredness. Kingdom citizens say no to self-centeredness. Objection, Pastor Ryan. Does that mean we don't uphold the law? No, it does not mean that. Because obviously Jesus is talking here about the application of this principle in personal ethical conduct. He's not talking about abandoning the legal system. So we still uphold the law, right? Uh, objection, Pastor Ryan. Does that mean we don't defend the weak? You know, we don't defend people when they're in trouble? No, it doesn't mean that either. What it does mean is that we, we carefully consider our motivations if we are in a position where we need to make use of the law, or if we're in a position where we need to step in and defend someone. We ask the question, why am I doing this? Because defending the weak is not the same thing as taking vengeance for ourselves. And seeing the law upheld is not the same thing as taking vengeance for ourselves. And brothers and sisters, in full candor this morning, you know the difference in your heart. If you're pursuing a course of action because someone wronged you and you just want to get back at them, or whether you genuinely are, are caring about someone who's exposed or weak in a particular situation. You know the difference. And I guarantee you, God knows the difference in your heart. And so really, the crux of the issue is our motivation. And so as Jesus explains this radically different way of living, he, he knows he needs to give examples, because everybody's going, what does this even look like, right? So watch the examples. And if you thought it was easy so far, just buckle up. This is about to get real, okay? We're back in verse 39. Again, he starts off the verse with the principle, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. Kingdom citizens, right? Say no to self-centeredness. What does that look like? First example, verse 39. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Okay. Uh, this is a, a situation where, again, culturally, the entire first century Israelite community was biased towards right-handers. Not much has changed, by the way, since today, okay? Uh, so <clears throat> to slap someone on the right cheek, you would have done that with your right hand. That's a backhanded slap, okay? This is a public insult, okay? This is not like a physical, like I'm assaulting you and trying to harm you. This is, I want to make you look bad in front of this crowd. Slap, boom, right? And so at that point... Your, your desire for vengeance <clears throat> is going to be pretty strong. Can I get an amen on that? 
I, can someone come up here? I'll give an example. No, I, just, right? I mean, you know, th- th- this is the thing. It's, you're not going to want to take that hit, right? <clears throat> this is an insult. <clears throat> it's a public insult. Now, in the first century, first century Israel, it, it's much more of a c- culture that's concerned with honor and shame in the eyes of, of your neighbors. And so to be publicly insulted and to not defend yourself is just crazy talk. So Jesus says, if someone slaps you, insults you, and slaps you in front of a crowd, small or big, He says, don't slap him back. Don't defend yourself. He says, turn that other cheek. Be willing to endure further insult. This is so different than how we're wired because of sinful self-centeredness. But we put ourselves first. Be willing to endure insult. The first example here, we, we learn that we can refuse the right to revenge. And we embrace humility. We let go of this need to always vindicate ourselves. Always have the last comment, right, on, on the photo. Always have the, the last word in the argument. We embrace humility, which, of course, is modeled to us by Jesus himself. It's no mistake that in Philippians 2.5, the apostle Paul says, think this way. The way Jesus thought, have in yourselves the same attitude that Jesus had, who did not consider equality with God something to be, uh, you know, grasped or held on to or, or leveraged, but he let go of that and he humbled himself by taking the form of a servant. I mean, if you just think about those words alone, that Jesus relinquished his right to be treated as God and he willingly adopted the form of a servant in humility. And he says, this is what my followers are like. They're like me. Where, yeah, you might get slapped in public and insulted. But instead of jumping up to defend yourself and escalating the conflict, instead you say, no, I embrace humility. Have at me. How do we do this? Well, it's by faith and trusting our reputation and identity to God. By faith and trusting our reputation and identity to God. What kind of a crazy world is it where people would just let themselves be insulted? A world where we trust the one who judges justly. And I guarantee you, if you're living with a a faith-driven, right, kingdom-mindedness, where we're trusting the Lord in our decision-making, your reputation is going to be just fine. It's going to be just fine. It doesn't mean, though, you can't be maligned and slandered. It doesn't mean that people won't insult you. But as they do so, you let God do the defending. You give up your right to revenge. That's the first example. Watch verse 40, the second example. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. Okay, now we we get into a little bit of a legal context, but it's still a personal ethical decision, right? So someone has sued you for your shirt. Um, Okay, it would happen, all right? Actually, some debts in, in ancient Israelite context in Deuteronomy, some debts could be paid through the giving up of valuable uh, belongings, including clothing. But in Deuteronomy 24, there's actually a law that says you cannot be sued for your outer coat. You can't be sued for your cloak, right? Because if you get poor and you got nothing left, you're still going to need your coat. That, that's the idea, right? So that law is there to defend people who may be losing everything, but hey, you still should have your coat. But what does Jesus say? He says, as for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. What? 
Jesus isn't necessarily going against the law here. He's saying you basically give up your right to counter-sue, and you just, you basically allow yourself to facilitate peace rather than further the cycle of conflict. So you give up your coat as well. They sued you for 500, you give them 1,000. What? What? <laughs> no way. In the state of New Jersey in 2023, you get a lawyer. I'd like to settle this. What are they asking for? Yeah, let's give them 25% more. What? Why would we live this way? How could we live this way? Well, we we embrace reconciliation as being more important than finances. Jesus says, if you're just in it for the money, you've missed it. How do we do that? Well, by faith that God meets our needs, we value people more than money. If you want to understand the second example, that's, I think, the best way we can grab onto that. We value people more than money, okay? Where we say, listen, this relationship is more important than whatever's going on here. So it's not hard for me to envision a situation where you have some kind of incidental minor issue maybe it's a little fender bender maybe it's some deal where you accidentally clipped your neighbor's mailbox or something or whatever it is right and there's going to be an opportunity for you to go to to go to war a little bit and to tussle because they're going to they're going to try to take advantage of you a little bit maybe and they're going to try to overcharge you or whatever and there's going to be some kind of conflict there and at that moment there's going to be two instincts right the first instinct again kingdom citizens say no to self-centeredness but In self-centeredness, you might say, no way, I'm not going to pay a dime for that then. If they're going to try to take advantage of me, right? And so then it becomes now this this conflict, and we're going to go after them. But Jesus says, actually, instead of that, what if you just said, you know what, how can I resolve this as quickly and peaceably as possible? Because my relationship with my neighbor is more important than my my bank account. That's, well, you can just tell Jesus wasn't from Jersey, right? The third example is similar. Watch verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Okay, now we got to know a little bit of the cultural background for this. All right. So ancient Israel during the first century was uh, a, a part of the Roman Empire. And there were stationed in Israel many Roman soldiers that were there under the Roman administration to keep the peace. That was their job. Roman soldiers, uh, they weren't Jewish. Uh, They didn't follow Jewish customs. They were seen as outsiders by the Jews, and they were outsiders. They certainly didn't respect, um, you know, Jewish customs as well. It doesn't mean they all were were horrible guys. They just, they were there as part of a, a, a basically a, uh, an oppressor that was there to, to kind of dominate the culture, right? And so what could happen is because the Roman soldiers had authority, they could take any Jewish citizen and force them to do hard labor or some kind of labor with them. And the Jewish citizen had basically no right to say no. And the clearest example of this we have in the Bible is when Jesus is headed to the cross and he gets to a point of physical exhaustion where he can't carry the cross. Remember the Romans just grabbed some guy out of the crowd? To do he, he couldn't say no to that. He had to say yes. There wasn't an option to say no. I respectfully decline. No, that, that's not a thing here, Okay. So Jesus is envisioning a situation where you're off, you're off to your, your, uh, your friends, your neighbor's school play, or to a business meeting, or something like that, or traveling to see family, or whatever, and the Roman soldier is there on the road, and his cart has a broken wheel or something, and he says, hey, 
you, Johnny, come over here. I need you. And all of a sudden, you're digging this cart out of the mud for the, for the Roman soldier, right? Who's your enemy, by the way? Who's not part of your people? It's inconvenient at best. And at worst, it's oppressive. It's an abuse of authority. It's horrible. It's, it's dysfunctional. Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. There's two ways of responding to that. You're not getting out of it. So Johnny here either takes off his coat and kind of mumbling under his breath, I can't wait, curses the Romans, I can't wait till they're out of here, and may the Messiah come and strike them all dead, you know, that kind of thing. And he just does the bare minimum, and that's it, and then he's out, right? Or there's the follower of Jesus, who takes a coat off, rolls up their sleeves, and says, what are we doing? Let's go. And instead of an attitude of self-centeredness, even in a moment where you're justified against an enemy to be in opposition to them, he refuses the right to hate an enemy and embraces the attitude of humble service. The Christian says, I live to serve. You need me to go one mile? Let's go two. How do we do that? By faith that God is sovereign, we endure hardship and serve. By faith that God is sovereign, we endure hardship and serve. Again, we just look to Jesus as the model of this because he underwent so many situations where it wasn't fair and it wasn't right, and yet Jesus endured, and as he endured, he gives us a model. The, the, the Apostle Peter makes that point in First Peter very clearly. Jesus acted this way when he was suffering, and so you should act this way. You should endure the way Jesus endured. By that same principle of entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly. We can do this, not because we don't care about justice, because we know one day all true justice will be dealt out. And so it's not my job to oppose the Roman army in that situation. And it doesn't mean that we, we overlook wrongs or anything like that, but it's just in that situation when you have no other choice and you're forced to do it, you say, how can I serve in this moment? Not how can I resist in this moment? This is so different. It's so different than our gut instinct. The fourth example hits us right in our wallets. Verse 42. Give to the one who asks you. And don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This is basically repeated. It's not word for word, but it's repeated conceptually from Deuteronomy chapter 15 Verse 7 to 11. In Deuteronomy, there God says, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted. I like that. So here's what's going to happen. Someone's going to come to you, and some commentators think maybe this is somebody who's wronged you in the past. Let's just go with that for the fun of it, okay? Let's just say it's somebody who, like, had wronged you in the past, had, put, had been an adversary of yours in ages past, and then they fall on hard times, and then they come to you, and they ask for money. I mean, you may have no greater pleasure in life than saying no to that person, right? Ah, oh, the tables have turned. Yes, what is it that you need from me, right? You know, kind of have that attitude. And I, Jesus doesn't clarify whether that's the specific here, but even if that is the specific, Jesus says, we refuse the right to be selfish with our finances, and instead we embrace generosity, and that person comes to you and they're humbled and they're shamed and they need help. 
it's hard for them to ask for help. And they've, they've come to you, though, and they ask for help. And Jesus says, well, let's give them a test and make sure they're going to be good stewards of what you give them. No. He doesn't say that. He says, if they ask you for help, then you need to, you need to help. Now, it's not, he's not giving us a new law. Or it's like every time you see someone, you know, soliciting you for money, you have to say yes to it. But he's saying, well, kingdom citizens say no to self-centeredness. And if I'm in a position where I can help, I have an opportunity to help, and I say no just because, frankly, I would rather keep my money than give it away, Jesus says, that's not my follower. That's not how my followers think. It's a different kind of thinking. How do we do that? How, how can we not be hard-hearted, hard-hearted or tight-fisted? Well, by faith in God, we give. We, we open our hand. And really, by faith, we recognize that everything we, has, everything we have belongs to him anyway. And so, if we have opportunity to use it for his glory and meeting a need, then great. We do it. Kingdom citizens say no to self-centeredness. In all of these examples, Jesus models how to live this way. He models how to not be stingy. There are so many moments in Jesus' ministry where uh, he was taxed for time, specifically, where it was long days and disciples are asking ridiculous questions and the people have needs and Jesus endured the long days and he gave generously. Jesus, of course, didn't make his ministry about money. It wasn't about raising money and just him getting wealthy. And the fact is, when you participated in ministry with Jesus, he was always giving stuff away. I mean, think about feeding the 5,000. I mean, there he is blessing others. And yet, isn't it remarkable that what we so often are obsessed with chasing every day is money? We just want money. But the Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians 1 that we have every spiritual blessing, every riches, every aspect of riches that we desire, we have in Christ. And we have it forever. So it's okay. We can, we can be generous with what we have now. All these examples, right? Jesus models how to live this way. And I think it's important that we recognize that when we do this, what we're saying is not that justice doesn't matter. We're saying we trust God who judges justly. And when Jesus even models, it's interesting in Philippians 2, Paul argues this way, when Jesus models humble service and obedience to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross, the rest of that passage says that God highly exalted him, that the Father exalted him. And so we depend on God to exalt us and to protect our reputations and to take care of our financial needs and all of that. We recognize everything we have comes from him. And so we entrust ourselves to him. So by faith, we can live very differently than our neighbors live in a shocking way. And when we do that, God gets the glory. And you won't for one minute regret saying no to self-centeredness. It may cost you more money. It may cost you time. But Jesus says, this is how my kingdom citizens live. Again, the key to living this way is faith, right? It's that we've trusted ourselves to Christ. We're depending on him. It's inevitable this morning that the Spirit of God will bring up specific areas of struggle in your life where you are saying yes to self-centeredness. We all struggle with it. No one's immune. And so the fact is you have an opportunity this morning to grow a little bit in being a kingdom citizen. 
We also want to be really clear that acting in these ways doesn't earn us forgiveness. It doesn't warrant our citizenship. You know, we've already covered it, but the fact is that Jesus, he's welcomed us into his kingdom before we were reformed, before we changed, right? And so his, his grace is just that, it's grace, but it's a transforming grace. And what, what his concern was here was that people were, they thought they were pursuing God, but they were living by this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth ethic. And Jesus says, that's not godly living. That's not what kingdom citizenship really looks like. My friend Spurgeon uh, explained how this aspect of Christian character is not optional for followers of Christ. Listen to how he said it. It was so great. He said, the rule of the cross and the all-enduring sufferer is for us all. It's for us all. Yet how many regard all this as fanatical, utopian, and even cowardly? You can't live like that. You're just, that's crazy talk to think we could act that way. What, not stand up for your rights? What are you, a coward? The Lord, our King, would have us bear and forbear and conquer by mighty patience. It's not that we don't care about justice. We're just waiting for God to dispense it. Can we do it? Spurgeon asks. How are we the servants of Christ if we have not this spirit? If you're living by this principle, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you may need to ask the question, am I even a follower of Jesus? Because kingdom citizens say no to self-centeredness. And we release the right to revenge and vengeance. And by God's grace, when we act this way, we actually stop the cycle of violence and conflict. And we promote peace and a radically different way of living for God's glory. Would you pray with me? And we'll ask God to help us live in this radical way. Lord, we humble ourselves this morning again, and we confess that um, this aspect of discipleship is hard for us. Lord, we, so often we tolerate and justify living by this personal vendetta mentality. And Lord, we pray that you would help us by your spirit to see clearly where we are being self-centered and justifying this me-first attitude. Lord, we know we need wisdom to apply this passage, and we ask for that. We ask for discernment, Lord. We ask for your guidance as we seek to live as kingdom citizens who say no to self-centeredness, Lord. And we think especially of these four examples and just how they display this attitude and this heart motivation that says, I'm going to be a humble servant. I'm going to put others first. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to be that kind of people, to be the people who are odd in the eyes of our culture, who stand out at our schools and in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods precisely because we won't pursue a self-centered agenda. But on the contrary, we promote peace and we're willing to serve with humility. Lord Jesus, we thank you that this doesn't mean we give up on justice, but we follow your example, your example of entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly. So Lord, help us to do just that, to entrust our reputations with you, to entrust our finances with you, to entrust our, our relationships within the community with you. And Lord, at the end of the day, to glorify you by faith 
living in this radically different way. Lord, help us to do this for your glory, we ask. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.